Hello and welcome to this episode of the Silk Narratives. Today I am thrilled to be in Beirut to meet with a visionary who has time and again demonstrated his dedication to enlighten his audience and foster a better understanding of this part of the world. He's of course known for his captivating TV shows, profiling big personalities from across the region and beyond. He has interviewed Charles Aznavour, Céline Dion, Zaha Hadid, Queen Noor of Jordan, to name a very few. Through his initiative, Takrim, he sheds a much needed light on the bright side of Arab identity and potential. But what makes him truly exceptional is his unique ability to balance humility and intellect like no other. Ricardo Karam, it's such an amazing pleasure to be meeting with you here in your hometown of Beirut. It is my own pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for making it happen and for being uh, our, our guest today in our modest premises. Uh, it's a pleasure to be among your guests in this wonderful podcast and to answer the questions you have in mind. Ricardo, here we are in beautiful Beirut, who remains unaffected by everything that has happened, unfortunately, in recent years. The fact that you have decided to stay in Beirut instead of leave, as many of your colleagues or other Lebanese people have justifiably decided to do. Why is that? I believe that um, this is the most beautiful city in the world. Despite all the upheavals, despite all the obstacles, and despite the corrupt system, Lebanon is not about a political uh, nomenclature. It's more about the people, the human nature, and uh, those small details that make our daily patterns and our mornings different. When you bump to someone and who tells you, Sabah al-Khair, and he says it with so much empathy and love and truthfulness that you can't find it anywhere in the world. Uh, when you have a flat tire and when your car is broken and stops suddenly and 10 people run to help you fixing it, this is something you only find in Lebanon. To say I have pain somewhere and to be surrounded by 100 people coming to soothe the pain and to be next to you and to alleviate uh, your agony is something you can't find it elsewhere. I'm going to forget about the landscape, about the sea and the mountains and the beautiful houses. It's about the human being who makes everything different. You're now staying in Lebanon in a hotel and the service given to you and provided to you and ensured to you by the hotel management and staff and the Lebanese is impeccable and you can't find it elsewhere whether in New York or Sardinia or Miami or Paris, you name it, it's always different. So this is why I believe in this country. I believe in the human nature and the people. And this is our way of resisting and resistance needs time. It's true that in my age, every day counts, every month counts, every year counts. But in the course of history, changes for them to happen and to occur they need a lot of time. So yes, we want things to change. They will change, but they need time. And this is why I've decided to be part of that change and to be with my fellow citizens, trying to make this change tangible and a reality. 
I believe every country has a soul and you cannot crush the soul of this country or the soul of the Lebanese. Ricardo, let's go back to the introduction, away from your achievements, away from everything that you could add to your CV if you like. Who is Ricardo Karam, the human? Well, I'm a Lebanese uh, citizen born in Venezuela. So eventually with some South American uh, genes, uh, I've never lived over there. I've lived all my life in Lebanon and in Beirut particularly. I'm someone who's still passionate in what he does and who wakes up every morning with a new dream and uh, with a new goal and who's someone very stubborn and who wants to achieve every single goal he sets. So every single objective I have put so far in my life, I've attained it. I'm a workaholic. I work too hard. I'm an early riser. I'm up at 5, 5.30. I always see the sun rising and I go and run in the morning and bump into people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, and to whom I smile and who smile at me and uh, who thankful and grateful to life and to God for everything that has been given to me. God gave me a lot and I'm so grateful to everything I've been privileged to have and to witness and to do and to experience. Ricardo, our childhoods play a major role in who we turn out to be as human beings. Could you give us a glimpse of Ricardo Karam's childhood? Well, I was born in South America. My father passed away before I was born. So I returned to Lebanon. I was a few months old. I've lived in a wonderful home full of love. I had a wonderful grandmother and uh, who was the pillar of the house and who gave me uh, uh, that value of love, of loving people, of serving people, of giving back to community. This is what she's always done in her life. And I have a wonderful mom. We are two brothers. I have one of my siblings who's one year and a half older than I, so we're like twins. We're two different, so we grew up together. And I've been an A student in my school years and then an A student at my college years. I've uh, enrolled at AUB. I had my BS in chemistry, then I had a BS in chemical engineering, then I had an MBA at LAU. Um, AUB gave me a lot, taught me a lot, nurtured me with a lot of values, especially empathy, compassion, tolerance. I was coming from a, a Christian area and I went to Beirut. I had to live uh, the same dorms and the same courtyard and the same campus with people from different religions. I'm talking during the war. And I had all those prejudices and all this fear from living with someone who's not like me. This is, you know, how the atmosphere was in the area I used to live in. And the AUB completely reshuffled my thinking and allowed me to never think what the other is, and to only establish dialogue. 
with any human being. And this is what, you know, thing, how things happen. Dialogue for me is crucial, fundamental. I've never judged anybody. And this is what Ibi taught me, to be judgmental, to think about the other as someone who will complement your life, will give you added values, and who can reshape your thinking. So I'm a pure product of this wonderful university. And um, I used to be so fond of music when I was at school. I used to spend all my pocket money buying LPs and then CDs at that time. I used to be a radio broadcaster and DJ in a FM radio station. I loved so much music. And I used to talk about all those pop singers and uh, uh, all the hits coming out. I'm talking of the 80s, late 80s. And I believe that was the most important era in the world of music because you had all those big singers. And till now, those songs are being played, if not remastered differently, and they're distributed differently. So uh, I had a call one of those days from the head of the local TV station, the public TV station in Lebanon, who said, I would love to meet you, I listen to you. So I went to the meeting and he said, I have an idea in mind, I would like you to do something on TV, a show on TV for someone like me, who wanted to go to college to pursue his medical studies and who was accepted at the medical school, but who said no. And I remember my mom went crazy. She said, it's impossible. You know, I've invested all this time on my son and he was an A student and he's being accepted at the medical school and he says no. So she spoke to, the, to my professors who tried to convince me. I said, no, 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 I won't be happy. This is not what I want. You know, I did what I did just to please my mom. And now it's up to me. It's my life and I need to trace it the way I want. So uh, I did my chemical, my chemical engineering accordingly just to have the title and to please more my mom. Uh, so when the head of the public TV station comes to me and tells me, I want you to host a show on TV in French, I said, my God, from being a doctor and, and practicing and doing surgeries to coming and hosting a show, and I did it. The beginnings were awful. Awful. I remember we had the huge cameras, not like those ones who are you know, small and tiny. And the fact that you look at the camera, it was fearful. So I remember I was shivering and I was, uh, my, my, my hands were like that and my eyes were, I, I was so afraid the first time. And I had no director and I had only a cameraman, a DOP. And we've, we've repeated the first session, I think five, six times. And then I worked on myself and I love TV. I have practiced everything and I've learned everything from interviewing, uh, from doing reports, from editing, from um, going down the street, talking to people, from attending concerts, from going to libraries, picking books, reading books, doing analysis. It was an important era for me, three, four years hosting a show in French, but learning the techniques and the backstage of the industry. And then when I felt I was ready enough to kick off something bigger, it was 1996, it was my first talk show. And from there, it was history. What gave you that certainty that you are meant to be doing this? 
I love people unbelievably. And I have so much empathy. So when I listen to any story, I live the story. If someone cries, I cry with him. If someone has an issue, I don't sleep before getting it solved and settled. I love the way people were engaging with me when I was at the radio station. And I felt that anything I'm saying was being heard and listened to. And of course, it was so narrow radio station. You had a multitude of radio stations that mushroomed in the 80s. And I was sure that people were listening to me and I was sure that I need to work on myself to be better and to have a wider audience. So when I went to the um, to TV, I was receiving letters at that time. We had no emails. There was no internet at that time. But the tons of letters I used to receive made me feel that I can be one of those days a change maker. It wasn't the time. I did not know how to be able to impact other people. But deep inside, I was aware that that was the beginning of something that can grow. I never went into the commercial aspect of the industry. I received tons of offers afterwards, of course, to host entertainment shows, variety shows, to interview singers. And that was never interesting for me. I never thought about it. They were of no added value to me. And consequently, I thought they would never be of any added value to the audience. I wanted to elevate the level of what the public needs to have and to follow. It wasn't about that singer who got married and who got divorced and who's fighting on the custody of her kids, etc. It was more of how to envision the future, to face life and its upheavals. It's more about how to challenge our daily problems. It's more about changing the narratives. All, all the things you know, I knew I was entrusted to do, but I never knew when. So this is why I worked on myself a lot. So working on oneself in our industry, first of all, is to be known, to be renowned, become famous, to have a name, a brand name then things will become easier. So this is what I did. And I have worked too hard, too hard. Was then your success, was it in this case not linear? I can imagine if you were not jumping at every opportunity and you had a tunnel vision, knowing exactly what it is that you wanted to achieve, did that mean that it took you longer to get to where you wanted to? Longer in a way, but definitely a lot of lost opportunities to be more known by the masses. I knew that I have reached the elites, but I need to conquer the masses. But with what I'm giving, it's difficult to conquer the masses because they want something more edible, something uh, uh, much more easy, something simple. And maybe, you know, what I was giving them was hard to accept and to grab. Talking about spirituality, meeting uh, spiritual leaders, uh, uh, life coaches. I'm talking 10, 20 years ago. Nobody thought about that. Now every day, everybody doing it. is doing it. But at that time, nobody was doing it. Going and picking the successful people and spotting the success stories. 
of men and women who decided to fight what is predominant and to change the course of their life uh, was not an easy job. And people were not used to that. They wanted to listen to the politicians, to the artists, and maybe, maybe to some sports figures. It was never about those individuals who are unsung heroes. Why to listen to them? And even the TV stations I worked with, they used to tell me, come on, the audience would be null and nobody would watch us. And those shows you know, proved themselves across the years. I remember, you know, I, the TV station I used to work with when I launched my first talk show that lasted for six years, it was MTV. I used to tell the, the, the management or the owners of the MTV, come on, let's do one show a, 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 a month that pertains to Unsung Heroes and the other shows will bring known people. But let's see. So it was trial and error. And you found out that those success stories were getting a lot of views, a lot of interest. So we did more and more and more. And now every single station in any part of the Arab world, in any part of the Arab world, whether in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, you name it, they all, they all tackle success stories because they understood that this is, this is what gives people hope. And this is the only inspirational pattern or inspirational spot where people can breathe and can have hope through. Ricardo, you've always had that strength about you. We know you on TV as this graceful, incredibly well-mannered intellectual who is super diplomatic with his guests. But there's, an, but there's another side to Ricardo Karam. You're not scared of saying the truth. You're not scared to stick to what you believe in, to the causes that you believe in, which needs a lot of courage in a world where cancel culture is becoming the norm and mainstream ideas should always be supported. Some of your colleagues might shy away from supporting some causes publicly. I'm thinking, for example, such as the Palestinian cause, which you've always spoken about. Where do you get that courage to keep your voice free, uninfluenced by any sort of outside influences, if you will? I believe in justice. I, I believe in truth. And um, I've always fought for the right causes. I've never been afraid, yeah, I've never been afraid for a simple reason. I'm a free person, I'm a free spirit. And I've never been paid by anybody. I never accept to be paid by anybody. I don't sell my soul and I'm someone independent in my work. I'm not a part of any group of media or any TV channel or any press institution. I'm someone who decided to fly on his own, and that was in the beginning. And uh, I think it paid back. Going back to the Palestinian cause, yeah, you know, Palestine lives within me, although I've never lived in Palestine. It's um, part of me. And the Palestinians have given me a lot. I gave them a lot, but they've given me a lot through their intellect, through the writers, novelists, through the thinkers, through the people you know I have met across my life, and whom I love dearly, and who loved me dearly back. And just for that, you know, I cannot be but grateful, and I need to 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 hold their cause and to raise my voice to the maximum. Some people attack me, 
and say, come on, let's stop, talk about that. Palestine is over and there is no more cause. And I keep on laughing when I listen to those people. I believe in justice and this is a cause we need to fight for and I keep on fighting for to the end of my life. Um, someday, to pay back. Ricardo, many Arabs are distracted by the differences that we have on, among us, the cleavages that we have among us. But one senses that vividly, your sense of Arab identity. Where did you get that from? Through my family first, through my reading second, through the teachers I had. I came at an era where I had wonderful teachers who believed in Arabism and who fed me with those values. And of course, I'm someone you know, who reads a lot. And when you read a lot, you read the history of your nation, of your region, of the Arab world to which we belong. You cannot be bad, sensitive towards that specific issue. Uh, however, I beg to defer with you regarding uh, the Arab countries. We're not all alike. Our history is not common most of the time. And uh, I think the media has not helped a lot in bridging the gap between the history and the present. A lot of youth in the Arab world, especially in the Gulf, do not know what is the history of this part of the world. And this is because of media. Media is not doing its job properly. Uh, we don't have those outlets that can allow people to engage and to know and to open their minds, to understand reality. They accept things as they are. They believe it's only about entertainment, it's about fun, it's about um, partying, and they forget the core of any cause, any just cause. So whatever is happening in Libya, or in Palestine, or in Iraq, or in Lebanon, very few among the youth I'm talking know about properly and know the reality. Why is that? Media. Media. Media doesn't convey reality. Media, I believe, is trying because of the different regimes to keep the people completely hypnotized and completely in a trance mood. And they don't want them to question what's going on. Maybe they're afraid, you know, for the people to know and to ask for a change. Look, so they keep them ignorant. Ignorant. It's a policy that has been adopted for decades in all the Arab world. And uh, I think you live abroad, but however you monitor and you see, uh, and if you see and follow what's been written on Twitter especially, and the different blogs that you read, uh, the interviews you might follow, you'll see a big gap, a big gap between the youth and what's happening around them. They're only concerned by what's going on in their own countries. But if you step out, they know nothing. It wasn't the case 50 years ago and four years ago. We had common problems, common causes, and we're all one. One for all or for one. Now, each one for himself. Yeah. And it's never enough for the other. Maybe I'm I'm a little bit backward. You know, I live in 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 a, in a in a old era 
but I believe in that and I know that uh, I can be a pillar in, uh, in a group made up of those people who still believe. And un pour tous, tous pour un. One for all or for one. Ricardo, when you hear the phrase remarkable Arab woman, who's the first woman that springs to mind without too much thought? They might not be known. I would go for women who abandoned a luxury life and who went to live in rural areas, in poor areas, and who went to make a change and to elevate the level of life of the people living in those areas. I have a lot of respect for women who went and lived in Yemen, in Sudan, uh, in Iraq, in poor areas, and who wanted to make a facelift to those communities and to help them to have education, to have the minimum requirements for a decent life, allow young people to go to college and then to travel and to start a new life. But at the same time, to keep their patriotic love alive. Because you don't want to lose all the young people if they go abroad. You want them to remain connected to their homeland and to the communities where they're coming from. So I've met a lot of wonderful women who are From Sudan, I would think about Magda Sanusi, who worked a lot for women's rights in, in politics, in elections, uh, who worked with poor people in, in Yemen, and who was a change maker. I would think about a lady called Hannah Edward, who is Iraqi, and who fought a lot For, for, for her country, I can think about all the winners that we've honored in Takrim and who are astonishing. It's never about the big names. It's not about royalties. It's not about the wives of rulers. It's about simple people, simple people who especially abandoned, I, I repeat, the lavish life to go for something more essential and to make the world a better place. Ricardo, you've also had the opportunity to meet with the celebrities, with women who are very famous, such as Hadid, um, Queen Noor, etc. Um, who was the one um, Arab guest, female Arab guest you've had that you were most impressed with on a personal level? Sure. There were too many. Some of them passed away and some others are alive and kicking and they're wonderful and they're pursuing their journey in a inspiring way. Among the people who left us, I loved and I treasure my encounters with Laura Mughezil, who was one of the leading female lawyers in Lebanon, who came at a time where females were not allowed to vote, and who was behind uh, uh, the change of constitution to allow women to vote in Lebanon. I would think about Leila Osairan, who's coming from a prominent family in South Lebanon and whose husband was a prime minister and who went in 1967 to Palestine and whose life was dedicated to Palestinians and to keep the memory alive 
and to fight in her words and in her, in her writings the oppression that occurred and the injustice that prevailed in Palestine. I would think about Emily Nasrallah, who is one of the top novelists we had and whom I have met when I was at my school years, used to read her books, and some of her texts were among the curriculum. And then from the uh, uh, leading women today, Zaha, of course, was top-notch. I met Zaha, she wasn't known by the Arab world. I met her in 1998, 1999. She wasn't what she became afterwards. And it was a wonderful interview, and it was like a tennis game. And one uh, ball in her court and another one in mine. It was a good interview. Zaha became afterwards a great friend, and I used to see her all the time. And her death, her passing was a shock that devastated each one of us, I believe. I'm proud to be Arab because I have women like Zaha who were ambassadors of the Arab world. And... Uh, Queen Murad Hussein is outstanding. She's wonderful. She's simple. She's a human. And I love her dearly. Of course, I've met the iconic Fairuz. It is one of the most important uh, encounters, you know, I had in my life, one of the most memorable moments uh, when I met her the first time. And of course, I saw her several times afterwards. Uh, Fairuz is not a singer. Fairuz is much more than that. Fairuz is a, a, a culture by itself a civilization by itself. Fairuz uh, is the history, is the legacy, is the future, is the Arab world. Fairuz is Lebanon, the Arab world, and Fairuz is the voice that inhabits us day and night. And she's, I think, the voice of conscience. She reminds us of how important Arabism is about. She reaffirms that cultures can transcend boundaries and can make wonders. Ricardo, about Takrim, which you have founded in 2009, you had the idea at around 2004, so it was some time. What was that one moment in time that made you realize we need such an initi initiative? Takrim, of course, is there to honor Arab achievement everywhere and to shed a light on Arab potential and um, what Arabs, how far Arabs can go. Can you tell us the background story? Sure. It was after September 11th, I was heading to the States, to New York, precisely, and having a Lebanese passport, you know, they questioned me a lot, and they asked me so many questions. It was a long interview, uh, very nicely, very politely, but it was, it, was a very long, it was a very long interview. I would say investigation at interview. And I said, come on, yeah, the Arab world, do we have terrorists, we have fundamentalists, we have criminals, but we also have wonderful human, bright spirits and minds. Those are the people we need to showcase. This is, you know, what we need the whole world to know about. And not only whenever, you know, the more the world Arab is brought up to think about those who were behind September 11th. And I said, I need to create something that, that would sustain and that would be the beacon of hope to the Arab world, and that be a reason for the others to look at us differently. And this is when Takrim, the idea of Takrim, came up. It took me almost 10 years, eight years, 
to make it a, a reality. We had tons of focus groups and meetings and gatherings, talking, discussing, till we found the format, the final format of Takrim, which we launched in 2009. And um, Takrim grew, of course, it was fine-tuned throughout the years, and it has imposed itself and it has positioned itself at the forefront of uh, Arab initiatives of that kind. And I believe the awards that are given by Takrim are the most credible ones in the Arab world. They're transparent, objective, unbiased. They're not related to religion, to politics, to gender, to geographical location. They're open to everybody. And when we see what we have done throughout the last 13, 14 years, and the people we've honored, or I wouldn't say honored more than we've highlighted, or we've put them under the, high, the, the, the limelight, we can see the diversification of those people, and we cannot be but proud. 95% of those people are unknown, and this is what we wanted. We wanted unknown people, unsung heroes. And I'm so proud that Takrim paved the way for the young people to have it as a reference. And at the same time, it allowed the media worldwide to have it as a reference in their writings whenever they want to talk about the Arab world in a positive way. And whenever they try to spot and to find and to search for wonderful achievers. When we think about Western representation of Arabs, Arabs in general, Arab women as well, it is very flawed, it is very limited, and it's sometimes even unfair. Do you think it stems from ignorance or is it conscious? It's both. It's both. Ignorance plays a role. Media never helped. And the journalists themselves have never attempted to search for the truth. Sometimes the truth is put in a box. And um, they don't try to open the box and to dig and to make their own research to know and to find out, to figure out whether what is in this box is reality or no. So we're stigmatized and we are portrayed in a very weird way. And I repeat that the media has not helped a lot at all. What more can we do? To be more vocal. Today, I think digital media, social media is helping a lot. And it's not the era of Al Jazeera and Arabia anymore. They're still important as references, but the viewers, you know, or the viewership is shrinking more and more because people do not watch TV anymore. It's true. People go, you know, for a digital media platform. They go for Twitter, they go for LinkedIn, they go for Instagram. There are some blogs, uh, sorry, they read some blogs, they read some articles through those platforms. And today the podcast is something very important. Everybody listens to podcasts. And when you impose your podcast, you impose your voice, you become a reference yourself. And this is the way, and it's the way that you decide to impose or to adopt or to convey that will make you different. And that will allow others, people to know who we are and to understand us more. We need more understanding. The whole world needs more understanding. And also we need to understand more the West. We always say, and always, it's recurring, when we say the West is evil, you know, they don't love us. All the problems are because of Americans or the Russians. Or, oh, come on, come on, let's stop a bit. Let's stop a bit. The problems are within us. Let's solve our problems 
And let's understand why the others also are looking at, at us from that perspective. So it's a two-way mode of understanding. Uh, they need to get to know us more. We need to get to know them more. Today, the whole world is open, but there is still a gap. And, and you feel it. You feel it. You feel it when you go to, to, to a restaurant, the way you speak. They try to figure out where you're coming from. When you go to a shop to buy something, when you, 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 you reach an airport and you are at the customs to be, to be, to be stamped, or your passport stamped, and the way they look at you, the way you see you, the way you, the, you, they, they read your name, all of this is very subjective. And we need to finish with that. And we need to be accepted as human beings, irrespective of where you're coming from, and irrespective of the mistakes of the ancestors, the people who came before us, whether here or there. Ricardo, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I'm going to go for quick-fire questions. Um, Ricardo Karam's favorite books? Difficult question. <laughs> you know, I read a lot. One of my favorite books is entitled 1,000 Splendid Sons of Khaled Husseini. I love it. And in Arabic, one of my favorite books is Matar Huzairan for Jabur Dwayi. Uh, the story of uh, a young young boy whose father was killed in a massacre that happened in a church. It's a true story. And that baby boy was born after 10 years of marriage and his parents went to all the saints and to all the churches and then he came. So the mother, instead of leaving him you know, in the village, and to seek revenge when he grows up, decides to send him to the States. So he went to New York and he lived in New York. And for, for, for more than a decade or 15 years, the mother hasn't seen her son. It was always through letters. And the son imagined in New York how his father was killed and what has happened exactly to him. So he decides to come back. And he came back, he was a man, and his mom, became blind and she wasn't seeing properly at that time. And he tried to go and ask questions all over to the people who knew his father, but there was no truth. Everybody was saying a different truth. So the truth he sought for was lost in translation. I love that book, it's called Matar Huzairan. So those two books come into my mind now, one in English, one in Arabic. Ricardo Karam's recipe for success. Perseverance in work. The definition of happiness. Family. The one life principle you live by and hope to instill in your children. Truth and justice. One person, dead or alive, you wish you could have interviewed. Nelson Mandela. Ricardo, what are your dreams for the future? To live in this country. It's very simple, a very simple dream. Can you imagine that? You know, we live in a moment of uncertainties and nothing is clear. Everything is confusing. It's very cloudy. I wish to remain here and I do not wish, do not want to leave this country and to lose the land like Palestinians. I want to remain here. I need to be part of this resistance and I want to see my kids growing healthy and wealthy in this country. 
Ricardo, I cannot thank you enough for this beautiful interview. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you. I thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. And I wish you the best in this wonderful podcast. Thank you. We're doing a great job already. <laughs> and I'm so. pleased you know, to have been part of your guest. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.